Goodfellas was made 18 years after Mean Streets. So I didn't really want to go to do another genre, gangster genre, right? I, I mean, there is no main character. I mean, Ray Liotta is a wonderful actor, but he's like Virgil taking Dante through the underworld. The real character in the movie is the underworld. Ready? Yeah. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a podcaster. <laughs> I know I'd go from rags to riches. Hello, welcome to the Extra Credits Plus of one of the greatest American films ever made, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. I am both excited and nervous right now, and I'm not, I was not expecting that because I thought I would feel that way going to Wolf of Wall Street, but I feel more like that with Goodfellas because this might be the most important movie we've ever covered on our show. Sure, yeah, I mean... I am really excited to yeah. talk to you about it today and to see what you put for all of your awards. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's daunting to talk about these epics, like these massive movies um, that I think are masterpieces from Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. It's intimidating. I think it is something that we tried to watch this morning and I had to like just let you finish it because I couldn't keep watching it because it's so hypnotic and yeah. consuming <laughs> and it's such an experience watching this movie. I feel like the adjectives I'll use today are going to make it sound like a six hour film, but it does feel like you go through like a saga with multiple yeah. characters, which, which you kind of do. It's like a 20, is it a 25 year span almost of these with these characters from 55 to 80? Yes. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. So even though it's only like a two and a half hour movie, it is like kind of an an unnerving journey and uh, and also simultaneously kind of an easy to talk about rewatchable movie. Maybe the most yeah. rewatchable movie ever too that I've ever seen. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like if we were, you know, doing a episode just talking about like all the amazing scenes and like the great editing and yeah. technical aspects, like it would be a very easy pod to do because like you said, like it's such a great movie and, and so well made. But I think that Goodfellas is really interesting. And the reason maybe we are feeling like this is about to be uh, maybe a lot to like, yeah, uh, parse out. Yeah. What Scorsese is saying here is because there's like so much in the text. It's moving so fast throughout, you know, uh, Henry Hill's life as we're following him in this rise and fall. And then also there's a lot going on tonally. Yeah. And I and I think that's like what I'm really excited to talk about today because I hear this movie talked about a lot in terms of like it's objectively one of the best movies of all time. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't really hear a lot of conversations, at least I don't, about like what it's kind of trying to say. Yeah, outside of like it being about the American dream sure. or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what where you're coming from is is where we basically came at Wolf of Wall Street, which is like this is a flawed masterpiece because the interpretations are not even close to one another. Mm -hmm. And so this movie, I think, is a film that if it came out today, I think it would be very similar. Like there would be massive, oh, massively sure. different yeah. interpretations if this is a 2023 film because I think. In my experience in growing up with this movie and having friends who also think this is like one of the best movies of all time who are like non-massive moviegoers, they talk about the movie often as like an anti-hero film mm. and kind of uh, instead of a cautionary rise and fall. Whereas like Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese was hoping to make that like a very clear rise and fall by like having Jordan Belfort, uh, Leo as Jordan kind of yell at the audience the entire film right from the jump, really breaking the fourth wall, yeah. telling the audience, hey, this is how like my tragedy begins. And in Goodfellas, I think uh, 
the interpretations are just as are, are probably just as like different, mm. but people don't like what you're saying. They don't really talk about maybe their experiences with it. Often they just talk about it as like this masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because like Wolf of Wall Street is a little bit more straightforward, like you're saying. And I actually thought that Wolf of Wall Street would be more difficult to talk about. But it's actually a lot more clear when you're just looking at like the satirical lens that Martin Scorsese is using to talk about Jordan Belfort's life and greed. And Mm -hmm. like like you said, there are very clear kind of shifts in, uh, you know, his wife saying like, hey, uh, wouldn't you feel better if you weren't you know, ripping off people who can't afford to spend this money. Right. Like there are very clear shifts that we see like a whole, a downfall from, from the beginning of, uh, Jordan Belfort's, uh, life, the character. Yeah. And with Henry Hill, it's like not as clear. I kept trying to, when I was watching it, uh, this morning, which I still have to log on Letterboxd. Uh, but I was like trying to pinpoint when is the downfall and I get so swept up in the movie. I like can't tell. And it feels almost like more grounded for that reason. That's a good question for our unanswered questions today. When we get to our awards later in the episode, Um, I do feel like, you know, we'll get there eventually. I feel like one of the reasons it's difficult to pinpoint when the fall begins is because this is a movie full of extremes and it keeps its extreme pace the entire time yeah and it is very rich like how you're saying so you have a lot going on in your mind already when you're just like kind of no one's like analyzing this film because it is you know it's used too much but it does feel like a literal roller coaster in the sense of like emotions kind of going up and down constantly Mm -hmm. but the movie is like a really strong meditation on assimilation and found family and the cost of the american dream Mm -hmm. but you also have like every technical aspect of this film operating at this like insane level like every collaborator on this movie from editing shifting tones seamlessly to the production design the environment feeling like ugly and sweaty yeah. to the <laughs> to the actors and the performances feeling like super twitchy and chaotic and the story kind of being violently like methodical but also like endlessly surprising all the way to the very end it's a vi- a very kind of musical movie and, yeah. and then speaking of music it's also one of the coolest and more notable soundtracks in American mm. film too. It's very poppy, but like in mean spirited ways. So you have so much going on that is so Scorsese, but also so different. Like we do, we just don't have a lot of movies to compare to Goodfellas. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It really does feel like everyone is on the same page in this movie. Like yeah. all of the creators, like there are movies that I think are masterpieces or that I, I love like Wolf of Wall Street that we just talked about, but mm-hmm. there are some pieces that, uh, I don't think are necessarily bad, but like may, might take me out of it for a moment or like I see kind of like the choices that are being made. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good point in terms of like pacing performances, just all the details that are wrapped up in this movie. Like everyone feels like they are really um, on the on the same track in terms of vision. And I think that might be because we're sort of immersed into like the underworld of Goodfellas Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word or the best word. I'm not sure, but like there is this vibe of the movie that is uh, kind of the main character. This is like the atmosphere of this film is sort of the main character, even though we're following Henry and Jimmy and Tommy, you can kind of feel from the movie that it's not quite 
uh, or at least as the audience, we're not supposed to be certain who the main character is. Yeah. Actually, I think the poster is a good example of that. Like <laughs> yeah. Ray Liotta not being in the center is a good example of this movie. Kind yeah, it's of, Robert De Niro, right? It's De Niro. Yeah. yeah. Which is a marketing move. But also I think it's a little bit of a flex from Scorsese for him to be like, it's actually just like everything that's going on in the frame, not just these characters. Like the whole feeling that you have is the main character of this movie. It's supposed to provoke in that way. And so Joe Pesci wasn't even on that that poster. Uh, on I our think. DVD, he's not. Yeah. yeah, Pesci's not on it. But on the main poster, he is. But like, okay, I I did notice in rewatching some of the movie this morning with you. I couldn't finish it all the way because it's so consuming. I like needed to walk away <laughs> just to like take some notes and think about it. But every time I finished this movie, I do feel like I had just entered into like a boys' club fantasy that is you know supposed to be constructed as a cautionary tale. But then when it spirals out of control and like collapses at the end, you no matter how many times you watch this movie, you're kind of left to laugh at yourself. Almost like you just watched a horror movie yeah. where you're kind of left uncomfortable and almost like you've been suffocated by <laughs> one of the characters in this movie, like yeah. Tommy or something. Uh, and yeah, so I think today's gonna be so much fun and I'm really excited. And, and also, you know, when I say it's daunting and I feel like I have anxiety about this film, I also think that's because <laughs> this might be, I, I know it is the best movie we've talked about on our podcast, but it might be the only movie in my personal like top 10 of all time that we've ever covered on this show. Uh, Wait, really? I think so. There's only one movie that comes close. I guess I don't know your top 10, huh? Yeah, I I don't think I've showed you that list. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind showing you that list. I'm not (laughs) hiding it from you. Also, every time we talk about Letterboxd, you you have access to our Letterboxd. (laughs) You can just have full freedom to take a look. Uh, I just never look at it. It's a private list. Um. But I think there is one movie. I'm, I'm probably wrong. There is there is one movie that we have talked about on our podcast. I was going to say Prometheus or like no, Whiplash. No, 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 no. no. Huh. We had a really See, great listeners, guest. Trey and I don't know everything about each other. Uh, we had uh, a <laughs> Haley Melodic, who's a fantastic writer on for Broadcast News. Oh, okay. And Broadcast News is in my top 10 of all time. Um, and I don't think it's going to leave either. Yeah. Goodfellas is kind of stuck there too. They're yeah. both kind of, they're fixed in their spots. Interesting. Okay. I definitely thought when you were going to say like we had a guest on, I thought you were going to say we had, you know, Sean on. On Sean Fennessy yeah. for one of uh, the Chazelle movies, but yeah. not okay. I'm oh. not, yeah. Whiplash, I feel like the more I watch Chazelle, it's kind of hard to rank any of those movies, but I feel like First Man, if we're going to talk about masterpieces, it might just be, just be First Man, okay. which we haven't but it's even not covered. Your, that's not your top 10, though. No, but it's probably in the top 50. So okay. that, you know, that's pretty awesome for a movie so recent. Uh, and then, Social network is definitely in your top 10 too. It's right? in my top five. Okay. Which yeah. we're doing next month. I, that when I say I have anxiety for this episode, <laughs> when we go on the social network, Kelsey's already cleared out like her whole day schedule. Cause that might literally be a five hour podcast. Uh, so I want to back up before we get to Goodfellas. I want to talk about young Scorsese leading up to 1990 okay. before we get up into our extra credits plus awards, which by the way, to Listeners of this episode, if you are a new listener or you are a main feed listener, you have 30 minute access to this episode. And if you'd like the full, probably three hour episode, uh, <laughs> you can go to the description and become a member of our Patreon, which is called Living Plus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my unanswered questions is actually about succession. Oh, oh this leave, movie leave inspiring that. succession. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited that for there, that. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about Martin Scorsese. So like we've talked about in past episodes, Scorsese is one of the leaders of New Hollywood. He is really the first generation of filmmakers coming out of film school, hoping to upend the studio system and kind of bring a subversive, transgressive style to filmmaking, mm-hmm. trying to take back movies from the studios that have made conventional films for decades. And when we think of Scorsese today being this massive cinematic innovator, that's because he took such large shots that 
weren't always supported by critics or the audience through the 60s to the 80s. Uh, and really since Goodfellas, now he's been sort of a, known as a mainstream filmmaker and now he's widely recognized as one of the most uh, well-known uh, American filmmakers. Yeah. But if you look at his work pre-Goodfellas, I can't imagine where he is today making $200 million movies uh, like Killers of the Flower Moon. I, I can't imagine that he would ever think he would get to that mainstream level because Young Marty was very different. Like Young Marty in the 80s wasn't really interested in going back into the crime gangster genre. There was Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather films, obviously, mm-hmm. and De Palma's Scarface or De Palma's Untouchables. There were already kind of like groundbreaking movies in this genre leading up to 1990 with Goodfellas that it seemed like Scorsese didn't think he had anything else to offer in that space because he thought, you know, he's been on record with this, that he already made his Goodfellas of sorts with Mean Streets yeah. in the 70s, which, by the way, Mean Streets has its 50th anniversary this year, which oh, is wow. pretty wild, incredible movie. Um, but I think it's kind of ironic, though, because if you think about Scorsese's career and if you ask somebody off the streets like, hey, what do you think about Martin Scorsese? They might first go to his informal crime trilogy of Goodfellas, Casino, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Which is just kind of funny that he thought, you know, in the 80s that he was already (laughs) done (laughs) with this genre, but like that's what he's known for most now. So uh, I want to go back to his youth. I want to go back leading up to Mean Streets because I think I'm framing the Goodfellas conversation at the beginning today around Scorsese wanting to kind of elevate what he did in Mean Streets is really important. Like maybe why he is so invested in this genre and these characters and why he has so much care for characters like Henry and wanting to show this rise and fall journey. Yeah, I like that we're doing this because I I think this is what we talked about also with Wolf of Wall Street that like that was kind of updating what he was doing in Goodfellas. Yeah. So, but people don't really talk about like how it starts in Mean Streets. I do want to say though, because you just said like incredible movie for people who haven't seen it. Cause I know that some people like love Scorsese mm-hmm. wa- have watched all of his movies, but for people who haven't don't go into it expecting like a Goodfellas or a casino or Wolf of wall street. It's very much like the, the kind of like startings um, of a lot of these movies. Like you see a lot pulled from those. And, yeah. and I wouldn't say personally that I think it's an incredible movie, but I do think it's a fascinating movie to look at what Scorsese starts with. And it kind of like lays the the groundwork and foundation for all of these like massive masterpieces like Goodfellas Casino and Wolf. Yeah. If people are fans of like films that are more neorealist, meaning like really bringing you into grounded stories that are still cinematic and entertaining, um, but that can get pretty depressing because of how real sure. life uh, they are, how connected to real life they are. Uh, mean Streets is definitely more connected to real life in a lot of ways than what we see in Goodfellas Casino or Wolf mm-hmm. of Wall Street. Yeah. So I recommend it for those people interested in that kind of like more documentarian like look into the life of people who are actually in poverty and like are trying to get into a middle class and stay there, but are like left to break the law. And like that's what a lot of those characters are going through. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what, he looks at that contradiction there specifically. And you're right, it is even shot like a documentary. Like the framing is more so yeah. that in Mean Streets. We're definitely going to get into why. Um, but let's talk about young Scorsese. So he's talked about in many interviews that the reason he is so obsessed with showing this rise and fall of immigrant identities uh, throughout the early to mid 20th century is because he grew up as a first generation American. He got to see up close what the American dream experiment looked like Mm -hmm. for better and worse from his parents who emigrated from Sicily and moved to New York and had Marty and Queens uh, in the early um, 1930s and 40s. 
And Scorsese had talked about how he saw many different immigrant families being exposed to brutal working conditions yeah. and turning to crime and or theft and their lives being threatened by people exploiting them. Um, and also, you know, how so many immigrant families took to the theater to learn more about American culture and also to feel their own culture represented on screen through international cinema. And it's not a coincidence that so many European Amer American filmmakers in the 60s and 70s come out of this first generation of Italian American families in the early 20th century because storytelling was so prominent in their childhoods. And that's a another thing Scorsese talked a lot about, uh, about how he observed so many Italian Americans uh, in the United States being exploited as immigrant working classes and seeing up close the hypocrisy of like an American ideal. Yeah. And there were all these cultural contradictions that uh, so many of him and his friends talked about that they would often try to look for in films and look for more pr provocative movies that would talk about these things. Uh, he notes Bicycle Thieves as a movie that inspired him at a very young age from the 40s, which is a fantastic film. Um, well, actually, can you double check the year of Bicycle Thieves for me? I, yeah, I sure. I haven't 40s. seen it. Was yeah. this one of the... Yeah, it's one of the movies I watched a few weeks ago that I'd never seen before. It's a classic, but I'm just forgetting the year. 1948. Yeah, 48. Incredible movie. I recommend it. Um, but yeah, so there are a few different films like Rome, Open City, or, or Black Narcissist. There are many movies that are trying to represent this kind of neorealist experience of post-World War II poverty and trying to claw your way to opportunity and resources. So... Scorsese at a young age became interested in this blend of impressionist and expressionist filmmaking that influenced him to kind of be the master of tonal balance today as an American filmmaker. And Scorsese, as he got older into his teenage years, he really started focusing on that immigrant experience. And he really tried to search for more anthropological films that really understood atmosphere and mm -hmm. environment, which Sometimes that would uh, lead to religious themes, focusing on sin or redemption or guilt, and obviously then deconstructing patriarchy or masculinity in all of its forms, whether they be through outlets like something that Scorsese becomes obsessed with, like organized crime in the gangster genre or in sports movies or entertainment films, and him just being interested by the ways that filmmakers chose framing devices of telling grounded stories about interesting constructs. And those things all fascinated him. And Outside of narrative structure, more stylistically, what I think Scorsese is so known for today is that pace that we were talking about yeah. in Goodfellas that is so famous now. He was heavily influenced by 50s new wave cinema of French films, German films, Japanese that had dynamic camera movements, that had fast-paced editing, that had narration overlaid with images, uh, freeze frames, needle drops, uh, tons of movies that he was looking for that would kind of uh, use non-conventional elements to tell their stories and he figures out ways to combine all these filmmaking techniques. Yeah. There, what was that? Um, there was a Japanese crime thriller movie that you were watching and yeah. there was like a freeze frame when I just walked uh, through the room while you were watching it. And I was like, Whoa, this is just like Goodfellas. Yeah. Those are the Yakuza papers. Uh, the Yakuza papers series. I think I was watching battles without honor and humanity. It's one of the seventies films that inspired uh, Scorsese for Goodfellas. Yeah. And it does a lot of that freeze frame. It does a lot of that kind of introduction with a needle drop, like so much fast paced editing going on in there. Yeah. You can tell Scorsese and, and Thunemaker, uh, or sorry, Schoonmaker, uh, watch that movie and then try to use that editing yeah. to their advantage. Yeah. Which and, is so funny to hear, like when people are saying that people are derivative, um, yeah. because they're copying <laughs> Martin Scorsese, you know, cause it's like, yeah, every, I mean, 
Yeah, maybe we could talk about that more later um, because yeah. obviously there are things that if they don't have any of their own like point of view on it, then they mm-hmm. do feel derivative. But like if something is copying like a pace, then I don't necessarily feel like everyone is just mimicking each other to to evolve like filmmaking. Yeah, yeah it is weird to shun young filmmakers from trying to take uh, and be inspired or be influenced by famous films that speak to them yeah. and then take elements of those, especially just technically, not even just story beats like Boogie Nights is, yeah. is an example of a movie yeah. that everybody agrees that is a huge film fan is at least great, if not a masterpiece or one of the most important American movies of the last 30 years. Uh, but that movie is like heavily inspired by uh, Scorsese's Goodfellas yeah. and, and other filmmakers too. Like, Well, Altman. I think it's just funny because I mean, we we obviously love Chazelle, but a lot of people criticize him for like copying, you know, yeah, La La Land, especially. Yeah. Uh, Scorsese or Babylon. And, uh, I think like he is very clear. He was like, I took raging bull and yeah. I edited it exactly like that for whiplash specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I respect verse. Like I would see more of the criticism if, we're seeing people steal, especially from like international films and not give credit to influences. That's like a different conversation. But I think Boogie Nights is a a good example of the kind of homage or influence, obviously, of Scorsese in that opening. And I just think maybe the word derivatives like used too much. Yeah, I agree with you totally. I mean, we've talked about this on our show before, but like Goodfellas is a good example. Scorsese's talked about the like tens, if not hundreds of movies in which he kind of like was influenced if you're being nice or stole from. It doesn't really matter either way to me. It's like heavily influenced by Scorsese's encyclopedic memory of movies. Like that's how I look at it. Like if Mm -hmm. you watch enough movies, of course your subconscious is going to take you all over the place when you're making these films. But even like that Copacabana scene or Paul Thomas Anderson showing you through uh, the 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 house or the club even those are like shout outs to like I am Cuba or other Italian films that have done similar things like or Japanese films like the ones we're talking about like there are so many movies that have done those kind of tracking shots or those follow shots where you're going through someone's home or Mm -hmm. or a new environment for like three to four minutes like those have happened it's just the way that Scorsese adds the the fast paced dialogue, all these small details like mm-hmm. Henry Hill holding, uh, handing out cash to people, yeah. then moving like tables for people cutting in line, what that means thematically, like the music, there's all these added layers to this scene that makes it very special. Um, but I do love what you're bringing up because I do think with a lot of younger filmmakers, there is a fear to make something original and that almost like gets younger filmmakers to check out and maybe want to make something genre because it's so stressful to think of something. <laughs> what does that mean to make something original? Uh, so. Anyways, as Scorsese uh, went into his late teenage years, he was trying to understand what films spoke to him and why were they speaking to him in that specific way. So he starts to become like conscious of his like own favorite films. He's starting to like interrogate his artistic interest and the themes that he likes. And also around that time in his teenage years, he starts really suffering from terrible asthma and that kept him out of uh, after school activities like sports. And or worse, which is what he's talked about a lot in interviews, which is that he was worried about, um, you know, staying off the streets or being involved in gangs or crime at a mm-hmm. young age, too. So he found himself in the theater quite often, uh, but he never thought he could be a filmmaker because being a director at that time meant you needed connections. And he was on the opposite side of the country for those mm-hmm. kind of connections. He wasn't living in Hollywood. And it wasn't until he heard of John Cassavetes. 
it's funny Which, saying that name. <laughs> I know it makes me think about of Mia. Mia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did a massive Martin Scorsese draft with the Letterbox Show. It was so much fun with Mia and Mitchell. But yeah, if you want to go hear Mia's thoughts and feelings on John Cassavetes, uh, yeah. go listen. And then hopefully one day we'll talk about Rosemary's Baby, so we can. <laughs> I think that's how it ended up coming up first. Talk about hot Cassavetes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd love to, but. It wasn't until really Scorsese kind of fell in love with Cassavetti's style and his films and really the way that he constructed like his own business model of making movies because Cassavetti's in the late 50s started making more and more self-financed independent movies and that inspired Scorsese and he really realized at that point, even living in New York, that he might be able to make his own film. So that concept of independent film really lit a flame in a young Scorsese. And only like 10 years after he learned anything about Cassavetes, uh, a crazy thing happened, which was that Cassavetes became uh, Martin Scorsese's favorite filmmaker. Or wait, sorry, vice versa. Martin Scorsese became Cassavetes favorite filmmaker. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about. It's like, basically like Ari Aster. And that's exactly Scorsese. what I was going to say. It's like, it's like how Martin Scorsese loves Ari and, and Scorsese talked about how he, he sat down with Thelma Schoonmaker and watched Bo is Afraid and Midsommar. Imagine and Ari's like reaction. He just <laughs> I uh, knowing or just listening. His I was about to say knowing exploded, Ari Aster, but yeah. listening to Ari Aster from interviews and getting prepped for Midsummer, like it sounds like he would have a panic attack yeah. if <laughs> Martin Scorsese called him and was like, yeah, so I'm watching Bo is Afraid right now. <laughs> Think of like all the edits he did wrong or something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so Cassavetes becomes like a mentor figure for Martin Scorsese through the late 60s and and 70s. And uh, but before we get there, though, Scorsese like did end up going to film school. He made tons of short films. He got into NYU's uh, film program, actually English program, and then got his MFA in film. Shout out English majors. Shout out the English majors. Uh, he met a ton of creatives there, including his editor, soon to be editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, who he'd later collaborate first on with, I believe, Raging Bull in 1980. And then every movie after and still, you know, doing it today with Killers mm-hmm. of the Flower Moon. And a few years later, after Graduating school, Scorsese got his first finance deal at making a feature film with Who's Knocking at My Door in 1967, a film that John Cassavetes hyperbolically identified as being a better movie than Citizen Kane, <laughs> uh, which is just the kind of friend you need. So like yeah. when we're talking about Ari Aster being loved by Scorsese, that's like, I think he's just paying it forward Scorsese a little bit like he's trying to identify who the next big filmmaker is going to be yeah which is so funny considering how Bo is Afraid was received like so many people left our theater notably or didn't see it yeah um I also just want to quickly shout out while we're on Cassavetes and Scorsese um Mia after our pod on the draft talk to Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon. So I just wanted to shout out her interview with Scorsese. Yeah, I'll put that in the description. I actually haven't watched it yet, so I'm excited to watch that after this. Yeah. It's like a 10-minute conversation with like the king of American cinema. Pretty wild. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think she got a shout out of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore yes, in, that, yeah, in that conversation, which is cool. Uh, so Scorsese went on to work with producer and filmmaker Roger Corman in the early 70s. He made a movie called Boxcar Bertha, which is a sort of neo-Western crime thriller that John Cassavetes really hated. And he okay. told <laughs> told Scorsese that, uh, you know, that he was better than exploitation movies like Boxcar Bertha, which was basically Cassavetes telling Scorsese to stay away from sensationalist or controversial movies that are unhelpful or, I haven't or seen that Boxcar, you don't know. So. 
I don't yeah, know take. I actually think it's pretty good, but a lot of people think it's his worst movie. Okay. I don't agree. But um, I think Cassavetes would probably dislike a lot of the exploitation filmmakers today. Like he wouldn't really like Tarantino, mm. for example. So I don't think he's necessarily right with this. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because Cassavetes, Roger Corman, basically tried to get Scorsese to stick to what he knows. And so Scorsese took that criticism from Cassavetes on Bar- Boxcar Bertha pretty seriously and went off to make the spiritual prequel to Goodfellas, which is Mean Streets in oh, 1973. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so really, I went back to Scorsese's early life and did a lot of research into interviews of him in the 70s and trying to get an, an understanding of what was going through his head when making Mean Streets because he thought he had made the crime film. Like this was going to be his like uh, this gangster movie that would yeah. be the one in the genre for his entire career. And I do think this film is widely recognized as one of his most important projects and uh, historically important. Uh, But as a film, I actually think it's in that top half of his filmography. So I understand why he thought he would stop here with this genre, because I even have it in my top 10 movies of all time for Scorsese. Oh, I thought you were going to say all time. Um, I think that, yeah, thematically it's up there for me. But I think in terms of like pace, there are a lot of slow moments that uh, that I find it like difficult to like make it through. Yeah. And so I don't know. I'd have to look at my ranking. I didn't look since the the draft. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it is a a fascinating movie to rewatch in order to look at the Martin Scorsese larger project, especially if you love Goodfellas Casino and Wolf of Wall Street, because it truly is the movie that gives Scorsese the license, I think, emotionally to feel comfortable to make a bigger version with a massive budget with twenty five million dollars like Goodfellas. You know, it's, it's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? Hi. Hello there. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening so far and hopefully you are enjoying yeah. <laughs> the episode so far. I feel like maybe if you made it this far. They got it this far. They're yeah. having a good time. I mean, let's hope. But to access our full conversation, you can go to the description of this episode to join our Patreon community, the Extra Credits Plus. Yes. And for only $5 a month, you can get access to our full catalog of Patreon exclusive episodes. Hope to see you there. No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. <laughs>